Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Cardinal Stephen Chow of Hong Kong has urged Catholics and Anglicans to display greater unity. We, Anglicans and Roman Catholics, are called to be Jesus' partners, individually and collectively. The Cardinal was speaking to an ecumenical gathering as part of the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity in England. Rome and Canterbury, England played host to a summit of Anglican and Catholic bishops January 22nd through 29th. Jerry wrote about the history of Anglican-Catholic dialogue for America. We'll discuss how the two Christian churches have moved from abstract theological discussion to joint action. Pope Francis has issued a condemnation of all forms of anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism, stating that they are a sin against God. Pope Francis sent a letter to Israeli Jews this past weekend, expressing his closeness to them and praying that peace prevails. We'll cover what the letter said and what it didn't. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from very lovely... February afternoon, it's like we're getting early spring in Rome, Colleen. Do you guys have the tradition of Groundhog Day in Italy, or is that just an American thing? Because our Groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil, saw or didn't see his shadow, and so we're now getting an early spring. Well, groundhogs are not known about in Rome, Colleen. <laughs> I don't think I realized how silly it was until I started explaining it. <laughs> A quick word from our sponsor. Embark on a journey of spiritual elegance with Saints for Sinners, where each one-of-a-kind saint medallion is imported from Italy and then meticulously hand-painted right here in New Orleans. Indulge the rich stories of saints. Who's your personal favorite? Whether it's St. Christopher for safe travels or St. Valentine for love, these medallions carry a special charm. As Valentine's Day approaches, envision gifting this extraordinary piece to a special someone, a gesture that transcends the ordinary. Explore the divine craftsmanship and profound symbolism that Saints for Sinners offers at saintsforsinners.com. Embrace the beauty of tradition and connection in every lovingly crafted medallion. Fall in love with love. Saints for Sinners will send a free love saint with every order until St. Valentine's Day. And now into our conversation. All right, Jerry, actually in Rome right now, you've had a lot of people coming in and out. Right now, the Pope is having his Council of Cardinal Advisors meeting. So that involved all of his Cardinal Advisors coming in, those who live out of town. There were these Anglican and Catholic bishops coming in. Soon there will be 300 parish priests coming into Rome for a synod meeting. Let's talk about those Anglican and Catholic bishops, though. The Vatican hosted 27 pairs of bishops last week. 
This was an Anglican and a Catholic, each from the same region, for a summit on Anglican-Catholic dialogue. And so they were in Rome the 22nd through 25th of January, and then they went to Canterbury, England, the seat of the Church of England, from the 26th to the 29th. And you were able to catch up with two of these bishops, one Catholic and one Anglican. Can you tell me who they are and, and what their work with this summit was? The two bishops are the Canadian Archbishop of Regina, Don Bolan, who had worked in Rome in the then the Council for the Promotion of Christian Unity for, I think, seven, eight years. And who our listeners might remember from our panel discussion with Canadian residential school survivors. He was part of that. He, he really is an expert on the, on the whole of the Anglican field. He started in Oxford at one stage. Uh, he, he knows the subject very well. I've known him for many years. And then there was the Anglican Bishop, David Hamid, who is living in London, but is the bishop, the Anglican bishop for Europe, for all the different Anglican communities in Europe. And they really are two very open people and people who get on, who've got a great friendship. And this is one of the real key things about the dialogue, the building of friendships. The Canadian Archbishop and the Anglican Bishop are the co-chairs of this commission. Just so that we get the um, full name of this commission in, it's the International Anglican Roman Catholic Commission for Unity and Mission. And this was one of the organizers of the event. It was also organized, I believe, by the Vatican's Congregation for Christian Unity. Yes. It's gone back to 2001. So this was 23 years of this commission. So it's almost a quarter of a century. And if you think that the whole of the Anglican dialogue really started back in 1966, so we're 58 years into the unity dialogue. And what we see is an amazing change, I think, in the relations between Anglican and Catholics. If you think before the Vatican Council, 1962 to 65, Catholics and Anglicans really, there was great resistance to moving into the other person's church. Right. You weren't supposed to go into an Anglican church if you were a Catholic, right? People didn't go. The, the, the culture of the time in the church, in both churches, one considered the others as uh, having broken away from Rome, and therefore they, they were outside the fold, as it were. Now we have a situation where the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, celebrated Mass in the Basilica of St. Bartholomew on Tiber Island. And now they call it also the Sanctuary of the New Martyrs because it has become a place where relics, memories of the new the martyrs of the modern age are in fact placed, including seven Anglican martyrs. So it's an ecumenical because the Pope has spoken many times about the ecumenism of blood, which brings us together. I have a really basic question here. Is the goal of this dialogue to ultimately bring the two churches back together? Since 1966, when then Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, and Pope Paul VI met in St. Paul's outside the walls, the basilica where St. Paul the Apostle is buried, when they met, they agreed that they should work together for the unity of the churches to bring about Christian unity. And from that moment onwards, the real dialogue between the Anglicans and Catholics started. And then you had the Pope 
delivering a homily and then inviting the Archbishop of Canterbury also to deliver a homily. The two of them delivered the homilies. This is without precedent. And then together they commissioned the pairs of bishops from the different countries to go out as pilgrims, like the Lord sent the apostles and disciples two by two. So they sent the bishops two by two to go back to their home countries and to try and promote this Christian working together. And this, you outline in your history article, is it marks a big shift that has happened kind of under the Francis pontificate, and I think specifically Francis's collaboration with Justin Welby, which is that this dialogue that's been going on for so long has moved from a kind of abstract, theological, kind of academic work into joint action. And it seemed from your article that this is in part because they acknowledged that they could dialogue forever. And there were these roadblocks to unity that are mentioned in the headline of your story. It's a short history of Catholic-Anglican relations and the last roadblocks to unity. You know, things like the ordination of women. It made the dialogue kind of strained. Is that an accurate reading of the situation? Well, what happened? The first 35 years of the dialogue between the Anglicans and Catholics was mainly focused on theological dialogue. And of course, there was uh, obviously practical consequences to that dialogue. They would go to each other's churches and pray together and many things. But following this decision to ordain women as priests and then later on women as bishops, that dialogue began to stall. And so they picked up on another track of the dialogue, which up to then had not been given the priority. In other words, let us do together all we can do together, given that we share so much in common. That is the track that they're on now, and which has got a lot of support from Pope Francis. He's always said that the different churches, they have theological problems. But if we wait for these theological problems to be solved, we will all be in the next world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And Jerry, this was the second time they've done a big commissioning of pairs of bishops like this, although this one was much bigger. I believe the first one was in 2016. And, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, other joint Anglican-Catholic actions we've seen in this kind of era of the dialogue, thinking of the visit to South Sudan with Justin Welby and Pope Francis, and also the ecumenical retreat that they hosted at the Vatican for South Sudanese leaders, at which the Pope you know, got on his knees and begged the leaders to to make peace. So when we're talking about these actions, what are we talking about? Well, for for example, in, in the questions for working for justice, working for peace, working for ed in education, working to help the poor, what we call in the Catholic Church the, the social justice dimension of the gospel is something that they both share. Each of the churches has martyrs in this field. And then, of course, when the people see that the leaders of the Anglican and Catholic churches in the different countries are, in fact, friends, sharing in good relationships with each other. It changes the perspective. Because remember, in the past, before the Vatican Council, they were in the different countries, but almost as competitors. And it's very interesting that Cardinal Stephen Chow, in his homily, in Canterbury Cathedral in the second phase of this summit, he says, we shouldn't see ourselves in different camps. 
we are members of the one family working to proclaim the gospel, to witness to the gospel, to live the gospel. One of the key ways, and this is a consequence of these summits and coming together, is the building of friendships. Pope Francis has insisted very much. You get to know each other. You get to work together with each other. And then later on, you discuss the problems in the theological or in the disciplined life of the church. I see it as a very, very encouraging development. After what seemed a moment of despondency in the dialogue, you are now reaching a new moment of energy, of friendship, of dynamism. There's a vision of how to move forward now, which was not really developed in the year 2000. There's a lot of resonances I hear with Pope Francis's entire approach to evangelization. I mean, I remember in Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, his first programmatic document, he lays out this kind of method of evangelization that is building a relationship with someone and, you know, building on what you have in common and trusting that, you know, eventually you'll be able to discuss and maybe overcome the things that separate you. And in the same way, there's an echo with what Timothy Radcliffe said to the Synod participants at the very beginning of the Synod on Synodality, that you're here to build friendships. Exactly, because the basis of it all is the baptism, that you're baptized into the church. It's a very refreshing thing that's happening in in the ecumenical dialogue, but it's also happening in the Catholic Church in the Synod, because the Synod is trying exactly to do the same, to bring that spirit into the parishes, into the diocese, where the priests, the people, they work together. They don't see each other as separate parts. They see each other as a family, each contributing in a different way, but walking together, praying together, seeking to proclaim Christ together, and working for justice and to address the problems of the world. Our listeners can find Jerry's short history of Anglican-Catholic relations at the link in our show notes. After the break, we'll move from Catholic-Anglican relations to Catholic-Jewish relations as we look at Pope Francis's recent letter to Israeli Jews in light of the war in Israel and Palestine. But before we jump into that break, I want to draw your attention to another important conversation on one of our other weekly podcasts, which is hosted by Ricardo da Silva, who is well known to our Inside the Vatican listeners as one of our producers and occasional substitute host. On Preach, the Catholic Homilies podcast, which Ricardo hosts, this week he has a conversation with Cardinal Arthur Roach, the Vatican's chief liturgist. Cardinal Roach will give an inspiring homily for Ash Wednesday, and then they have a conversation about Cardinal Roach's advice for every Catholic preacher in the world. They also talk about their thoughts on Pope Francis's vision for preaching in a more synodal church. Preach, the Catholic homilies podcast, is available wherever you listen to podcasts, but we'll make it easy for you to find and put a link in our show notes. All right, now for that break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. una volta il mio pensiero va a quanto sta accadendo in Israele e in Palestina. Pope Francis said that a two-state solution is needed for Israel and Palestine in order to put an end to this war. The Pope further called for a special status for Jerusalem and said that everything can in fact be gained through peace and dialogue. The Pope also reaffirmed his solidarity with the Jewish people and called 
to release the hostages. On February 2nd, Pope Francis sent a letter to Dr. Karma Ben-Johanan, a professor in the Department of Comparative Religion at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Dr. Ben-Johanan had put together an open letter to the Pope that was ultimately signed by some 400 Jewish scholars and rabbis. It called on the Catholic faithful to join us in the memory of the victims of the October 7th massacre, to advocate for the release of the kidnapped and hostages, and to acknowledge the vulnerability of the Jewish community at this moment. This came after Pope Francis reportedly referred to Israel's war against Hamas as terrorism, a comment that was strongly criticized. Now, the Pope's letter in response to Dr. Ben-Johanan is, interestingly, addressed to the Pope's Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel rather than to the entire Israeli nation. Jerry, why do you think he framed this in religious terms, and what's the significance of that choice? Well, first of all, the letter was from more than 400 rabbis and Jewish scholars from different parts of the world. Dr. Ben-Johanan was one of the first four or five. There was one from Chicago, one from Bern, one from Paris, and one who's also working in Rome. And they wrote the letter, these five of them, and it was signed by more than 400 others. They were concerned because the October 7th attack by Hamas felt as an existential threat to the people in Israel, but to Jews worldwide. They felt he, he was a group who was out to exterminate them. I mean, this was the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. It shattered an idea that Israel had of its borders, its security apparatus being impenetrable. Yes, it shattered the feeling of security that they had. We were in a state where we were forever secure, protected by our army, which is one of the best in the world. And that security crashed with the October 7th attack. And they felt very vulnerable. And they wanted the Pope to come out and really come out strongly condemning Hamas, but take their side and take the side of the state of Israel. Pope Francis responded to them as a pastor. He was looking on what, as Jews, they shared with Catholics. And he said, as Catholics, we share so much with you. But he never mentions the state of Israel in this letter. And that's significant because he's looking at it from a religious point of view, speaking to people who share the Jewish faith. And he is saying to them, we share a lot in common. We've recognized this. We continue to recognize it. But we must work together for peace. And he says, yes, we also are against what is happening in many places, this anti-Jewish feeling, anti-Semitic feeling. The Pope, in pretty much every instance in this letter, you know, he said, yes, I, he said, I express my closeness with the Jews. I embrace each of you, especially those who are consumed by anguish, pain, fear, and even anger, acknowledging all of the things that the Jews are going through right now. He said that there are rising attacks against Jews worldwide and said he and Catholics around the world are concerned about those. In nearly every instance, he also mentions Israelis and Palestinians together, right? He says, my, my heart is close to you, to the Holy Land, not naming the nations, but saying the Holy Land, to all the people who, who inhabit it, Israelis and Palestinians, and I pray that the desire for peace may prevail in all. And throughout that letter, we see that Israelis and Palestinians, Israelis and Palestinians. Remember, in the state of Israel, you have 7 million Israeli Jews and 2 million Arab citizens of Israel who are not Jews. So, but he's talking to my Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's very interesting that he quotes from the talk that he gave when Shimon Peres, then president of Israel, and 
Abu Masson, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, came to the Vatican to pray for peace in June 2014. Why do you think it was significant that he quoted from that particular speech? Because that was where the two peoples came together to pray for peace. It came after his visit to the Holy Land, when he went to Jordan, then he went to Palestine, and then he went to uh, Israel, May 2014. So this is about a month later. And he saw the situation there, and he felt only prayer can take us beyond this political impasse. And he invited the president of Israel, Shimon Peres, and Abu Masson, and they both accepted and they came and prayed for peace. I remember I was in the Vatican Gardens when, when that happened, and it was very powerful. He says, we've heard the summons from God, more or less. We must respond to it. It is the summons to break the spiral of hatred and violence and to break it by one word alone, the word brother. I found this was a most powerful part of the speech. He's saying, we've got to recognize each other as brothers and sisters. The failure to do that is what is destroying us. And he says, we've got to recognize, acknowledge one another as children of the one father. He's addressing the Jews of Israel, his brothers and sisters, as believers in the one God, like the Christians and like the Muslims. He sees that the hatred that has come as a result of this war, provoked by the attack, but having a long history of 75 years, he said, the hatred that is developing is preventing us from seeing each other as brother and sister, preventing us from seeing each other as, as children of the one father. In fact, we heard one of the Israeli ministers describing the Palestinians as animals. And this is the background to the letter. Francis saying, we are religious people. And so he's relating to them on a religious dialogue level. The professor, Ben Johanan, she is involved in the dialogue with the Christians and Jews, heavily involved. And it's at that level Francis is entering. He's not entering at the political level of the state of Israel against Hamas, etc. He's talking at the human level, at the level of deep faith. Which is surprising, you know, given that the Pope adamantly refuses to to do any of the side taking that, you know, people have wanted him to do on, on either side. Well, he's said many times, Colin, we should not be taking one side or the other. We should be all for peace. Dr. Ben Johannan also wrote an article for America called There is a Right and Wrong Way for Catholics to Criticize Israel. Our listeners can read that at the link in our show notes. I want to transition us now, you know, in the first half of the show, talking about Anglican-Catholic relations, we talked about the move towards action from just discussion. And we've seen the Vatican taking some humanitarian actions in Gaza specifically. Can you just talk to me about those efforts to, to bring Gazans for treatment in, in Italy? Yes, a Franciscan friar, who is vicar of the custody of the Holy Land, it was his idea. The project is to bring a hundred of these children, some whose legs are amputated and some who've been amputated without anesthetic, some who's been burned, 30% of their body burned, some who's risked losing their sight, some who've lost limbs. Many of them have lost all their parents. They were children. 
they brought out a group of 10 first and then, I don't know, around 40 or 50 in the second batch. The effort was proposed by this Franciscan friar. Taken on board, supported by the Vatican, they brought them with the help of the Italian government, with the help of Egypt, with the agreement of Israel. When they get to Rome, the Italian government asked the community of Sant'Egidio, Caritas, and other organizations which work with humanitarian corridors to provide residence for them and their families until they can be treated. Some are being treated in the Bambin Gesù Hospital just down the road from the Vatican. Some are being taken up to Genova, to Bologna, to other hospitals. But these kids, apart from the physical injury, they live the traumas. They've seen their mothers, their fathers killed, their brothers, their houses destroyed. And they are but a drop in the ocean, 100 out of a population of almost a million children that's under the age of 18 in Gaza, 47.3% of the population. I don't think the general public in Europe or the United States still understands what is happening. And I think when this war is over and the cameras go in and the testimonies will be there, it will be shame to the world that you let this happen. And bringing these children out, it's a great gesture. But what's needed is a ceasefire, as the Pope constantly says, as 153 countries of the world have called for. And the Pope, in this letter, he's calling for Jews in Israel and Catholics to work for peace so that Palestinians and Israelis can together have a future. Our listeners can find the full text of Pope Francis's letter, along with that article by Dr. Ben Johannan, uh, at the link in our show notes. Jerry, I'll be out next week, but Ricardo, our uh, usual substitute co-host, will be filling in. And for listeners, again, don't forget to head over to Preach the Catholic Homilies podcast to listen to Ricardo's conversation for Ash Wednesday with Cardinal Roach. Jerry, thanks for talking with me this week. I appreciate it. Thank you, Colleen. We've much to talk about next week, I'm sure. All right. I will see you the following week, but Inside the Vatican will be back next week. Now, we have many Vatican stories that we didn't have time to cover in the show this week, so we have a few headlines before we go. First, Pope Francis's Council of Cardinal Advisors, basically his cabinet, is meeting this week to discuss the role of women in the church. Their agenda includes presentations from three women theologians. One of them is an Anglican bishop. As we mentioned at the top of the show, 300 parish priests have been invited to the Vatican for a special synod meeting. This comes after the synod was criticized for not including many parish priests in its October 2023 meeting. We have coverage of that planned meeting online and expect to have more news for you about this upcoming October synod assembly by the end of the month. Next up, the Vatican has issued a clarification on who is considered to be a vulnerable adult in cases of abuse. Church documents in the last few years have included a broad definition of vulnerable adults, but on February 1st, the Vatican's Doctrine Office, which is tasked with investigating cases of abuse against minors and vulnerable adults, said that its jurisdiction only covers minors under 18 and, quote, those who habitually have an imperfect use of reason. Other cases of abuse against adults would then be handled by a different Vatican office, like the dicasteries for bishops, clergy, or institutes for consecrated life, depending on who the alleged perpetrator is. The same doctrine office also issued another clarification this weekend, saying that priests must stick to the words written in liturgical books when performing the sacraments. 
This comes after two highly publicized cases in the United States, one of a priest who had baptized thousands of people invalidly, and another who realized his own baptism was invalid because of the words that were used. You can read more on all of these stories at the link in our show notes. And believe it or not, there are even more Vatican stories from this week that we weren't able to mention in this show. You can find all of them at americamagazine.org, and you can always stay up to date with us on social media. We're on Instagram at americamedia, and on x at americamag. And then for regular, more informal updates, you can also follow me on Instagram and X at Colleen Dully, that's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E, and Jerry on X at Jerry O. Rome, that's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. It's produced by me and Ricardo da Silva. Audio engineering is by Kevin Christopher Robles, with production assistance from Delaney Coyne, our O'Hare Media Fellow, and Robert Balasser at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Media. Just click the link in our show notes. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.